thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This episode is brought to you by Verizon. Verizon is dedicated to giving more to those who give the most, and they are proud to offer military and veteran families their best pricing ever on Unlimited, with 5G included at no extra cost. Mix, match, and save with plans starting at $30 per line per month with four lines on Start Unlimited. Additional terms apply. For more information and to see if you are eligible, visit verizon.com military. I know what you're thinking. The law of armed conflict? Come on, Jello, how exciting can that be? Well, don't touch that dial because you're about to find out. True, it's not a sleek fighter like the F-14 Tomcat or an amazing air-to-air missile like the AIM-120 AMRAAM. But none of that stuff matters if we don't get the rules of warfare right, as we learned this week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast with our guest, retired United States Navy Captain and Judge Advocate General Shannon Coughlin. So yes, under a certain set of circumstances where you are uncertain of intent, whether you have statesmen and diplomats still trying to work things out nation state to nation state, your ROE, your rules of engagement might be don't fire until fired upon. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello, and joining me as co-host today is Trevor Boswell, call sign Boat. How's it going, buddy? Hey, Jealous, doing great. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well, man. It's been a little while since we were both on here at the same time. It has been a bit of a stretch, yeah, for sure. Okay. Lots of my voice, though, apparently. <laughs> well, you did the uh, episode 103 on the F-100 and then 105. And by the way, a lot of positive feedback on the F-105. Nicely done. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, no, I had a great time. It's been an absolute blast. So thanks for letting me uh, have at it. Sure thing. So what's new with you? Anything? Just another couple weeks of... Uh, Life in COVID times, uh, but fortunately for me, I was able to get the COVID vaccine through uh, our mutual airline there and get that knocked out. So I got the Johnson & Johnson version, and so far, so good on the uh, after effects. Yeah, let's see what else. I'm going to uh, Sun & Fun coming up here in April. So if anybody is uh, planning on attending that, I look forward to hopefully being able to meet up with anybody that's coming down. Awesome. Well, be sure to use the uh, Fighter Pilot Podcast social media to let folks know where you are. Definitely. You can post something on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and people can follow you. Yeah, for sure. Well, dude, I am going to be in your neck of the woods soon. Stiff arm as I might, I was unsuccessful in forwarding off my commute that the airline wants me to do. So I'm coming out to learn a new airplane later this month, about a week after this episode debuts, and I'll be there for a month. And then for now, they've got me going to New York and hoping to move to Salt Lake just as a base goes as soon as possible. But I will have to hook up while I'm out there. Well, absolutely. Yeah, you definitely, if not at my house, then maybe even in the training center, because I'll be right there, right behind you. 
learning a new airplane, different airplane than you, but a new airplane to me. So uh, unfortunately, we'll both be busy studying new numbers and limits and all the other good stuff that comes with learning a new airplane. But hopefully it's a good time when it's all said and done. Well, you get to at least stay in your home base. And I think at the time, that was how you did it, was by having to switch airplanes, right? That's correct. Basically, whatever means necessary. Okay. Well, let's see. We are moving on from the Century Series, as we talked about last time, and people really love that. But we did have some folks that reached out and said, hey, wait a minute, what happened to the F-103? Because there was one on design, although Bruce tightened us up on that, as we like to say. And then there was a couple others, F-107, 108. I don't think they made it very far. There was an F-110 for a while, and we have a phone call from a gentleman who wants to comment on that. We're going to leave it till the very end of the episode. So if you stick around past the closing bumper and the flyby, then you'll hear that. And Boat, I'm guessing you already know about the F-110. You ever heard of that one? I've heard through the numerous comments online (laughs) from our various social media sites that uh, there was an F-110, and people really want to know where it went. So uh, let's leave that to the end and let them figure out what's going on there. Okay, but let's hint, though, that we already covered it, as it is now known here on this show. I think it was around episodes 52 and 53, roughly. That's true. Uh, It was a two-part. Anyway, okay, well, again, stick around to the very end if you want to hear that phone call. Otherwise, let's cover some announcements, and then, Boat, we've got some questions that you're going to help with. First off, since you heard from us last on episode 106, we've had not one but two bonus episodes. The first was promoting our teammate Rich Cooper's new aviation photography initiative. So check that out if you're into aviation photography. And then we also released just a few days ago another promotion for our friend Brad Elward on his Top Gun 50th anniversary book. It's a really cool book, Boat. I should send you a copy. He's got a bunch of great photos and uh, talks a little bit about Top Gun, but really it's a precursor for the big book, about 700 pages telling Top Gun's 50 years story that will be out just around the time the movie is out. So uh, really looking forward to that. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully that uh, movie doesn't get delayed any further because I'm pretty excited about it. No doubt. Yeah, well, I think at this point, sounds like things are trying to get back to normal. So we'll hope that Paramount sticks with that. But at any rate, if you are a subscriber to the show and your new podcasts automatically show up in your favorite podcast app, then eh, you probably already know all this, but it doesn't hurt to reiterate it, I suppose. Now, Boat, I've got some questions. I think you've got some questions. So why don't we start with an email from Paul Bishop? He says, the psychological effects of flying missions over Europe during World War II were a big problem for the 8th Air Force crews. Everyone was affected, many very seriously, due to, and he lists a whole bunch of different contributions here, but air combat, fatigue, cold weather, loss of so many others, meaning his shipmates or airmates there. Prospect of completing missions in one piece was also very slim. How badly were air crews affected in the Korean and Vietnam Wars, Paul wants to know, as well as today in the Middle East? What kind of help or treatment is available today? So, Boat, what do you got on that? Well, Joe, I know this one's been in the queue for a while, and I think it's probably about the right time to answer this question because of our completion of the Century Series. And you got to hear from a bunch of uh, different guests that flew a variety of aircraft in a variety of different situations that experienced this firsthand and have all of those emotions associated with losing you know, their wingmen, their squadron mates, whatever the case may be. I know for the couple of episodes that I hosted, the feelings were palpable in the room with respect to you know, feeling that loss directly and either seeing it firsthand or seeing it after the fact in the bar when that person was no longer there. And then to the positive side there, when they were released, if they did become PAW, when they were released back home to the U.S. So 
absolutely totally affected. And I think, you know, you look at Korean and Vietnam, those are they're pretty stark histories. And then today in the Middle East, you don't see it quite as much because it's a different kind of warfare. It's a different type of enemy, if you will. And there are some prime examples that have come out within the last five to 10 years of how different that war actually is. And so as far as treatment and help that's available out there, you've got the chaplain, you've got the flight surgeon. And I don't know, Jello, what else can we say about this? Well, it is not just losing your friends, right? Nick Mongillo Mongo talked about losing his squadron mate Spiker on the first night of Desert Storm, but then also he went on to take a life in a MiG-21 the next day. You also have Rico, who was on the show, a bonus episode back in December, talking about the physiological effects of his body after he vanquished a MiG-29, and that happened on these other two kills. And so if you ever read the book Fox 2 by Duke Cunningham, who was with Willie D, and we've had him on the show, he talks about how he dealt with it afterwards, the taking a life, because it's so different. I assume, uh, I've never been a ground soldier, but you know that's very up close and personal, but it still affects you even in air combat where you're not face-to-face. It's an interesting thing, Boat, because you and I have talked to people who have done it. We've experienced this lifestyle, if you will. I don't know what else to call it, but you know, making careers in this. But I honestly don't think either one of us knows what it will be like because we've not been through it. And if we do, then you're right on, which is there is help available. There are different agencies and the chaplain and the flight surgeons are good first places to go. But I don't think there's any way for us to know how we would react. No, it's, I think, probably a very monumental experience in your life. And if you're not impacted by it, maybe that's another question for another topic for discussion for another day. But uh, it's definitely an impactful piece of someone's life based off the people we've spoken to. So mm-hmm. definitely a great question. No doubt. All right, next, let's take a phone call. Hey, Jello, this is Sean in Pensacola. Uh, recently, you said you wouldn't consider people who shot down drones or you wouldn't consider those aerial victories. And that got me thinking about guys who shot down V1s during World War II. Some of those guys shot down 30, 40, or even 50 V1s. And I was wondering if you would consider those guys aerial aces since they shot down a lot of V1s or you would not consider those guys aces. Thanks. Love listening to the show. Have a good day. All right, Boat. Well, I certainly did not pretend to become the authority suddenly on what makes a person an ace or not. I always just assumed it was five air-to-air kills. And there was a time that, okay, yeah, we had the V1s in World War II, but I always just assumed it was five air-to-air kills against another aircraft that was manned. I guess that's what I'm going to stick by. But again, I didn't mean to be the one who's slapping the table and saying, thus it shall be. I don't know, Boat. Help me out here. Oh, no. That's it. You've thrown down the gauntlet, and that's all that can ever be. Uh, Jello has spoken. Okay. You know, I'd agree. I think it's not necessarily an it depends situation. I think it's a lot more of a personal choice or personal interpretation of what it means to be an ace. You know, the number of kills is one thing, but then, you know, the thing that you're shooting down. And if you looked out through history, back to World War I, they were shooting down balloons. And I don't know about you, but those things don't move that much, especially the observation balloons. So mm-hmm. I look at that as kind of a question mark in my mind as to how that's a valid kill. But it does have a, at the time anyway, did have a guy in it with binoculars looking over the front line. So I don't know what the right answer is, but I would tend to agree with you there, Jello, that, you know, it's an aircraft with a person in it and it's mano a mano and whoever comes out of it is the victor and you go forth from there. So we'll see what, if that definition changes over time. But uh, I think that's the way to go as well. Sounds good. Now, I think you have one. I do. Yeah, we have a uh, an email coming at us from Ontario, Canada, from 
Jevin, one of our Patreon subscribers who asks, French and uh, U.S. Navy aircraft have landed on each other's carriers before during training, but do the two countries' fighters share any common parts, pieces, or otherwise? So fuel, ammunition, expendables, that kind of thing. Follow-on questions include, would they be able to do night traps on each other's boats? And if so, would a U.S. Navy LSO need to be on board the Charles de Gaulle and vice versa for the uh, appropriate country? You know anything about that, Jella? Well, I only what I've read. I wasn't present when they did it, I think, the first time in 2015, as I read, and then again in 2020. But yes, they did demonstrate the ability to land on each other's carriers. Hornets went to the Charles de Gaulle, and Rafales came to, was it the Nimitz? I don't remember. At any rate, uh, whatever carrier it was, there was interoperability that was demonstrated, first with touch and goes, and then traps and cats, as we call it. And yes, we share common NATO fuel and fuel attachments, which makes it easy, as well as some ammunition. So Mark 80 series, general purpose bombs and laser guided bombs. Plus they have the same mill standard 1760 electrical interface that I had on my Hornet and boat you had on your Viper. So that theoretically a Rafal could carry a JDAM, and the JDAM and the aircraft could talk to each other through that interface. But the real question is, does the Rafal in this case have the software to support knowing where the LARs are, or the weapon engagement zones, if you will, for where to drop the JDAM? And have they done the testing to know that when it drops, it's not going to come back and smack the wing or a flap or something? So there's all those unknowns. And then there's you know a handful of things that, frankly, I just can't answer because I don't know any more than you do, Jevin. But I do know that from watching some videos and reading about it, that they did send folks to each other's carriers. So I saw yellow shirts from the Navy on the Charles de Gaulle and vice versa. So I assume the LSOs went back and forth as well. And then as far as landing at night, I mean, yes, the aircraft can do it. I mean, it doesn't matter if the sun is up or not. I think the real question here is, is a Hornet compatible with whatever the Charles de Gaulle has? And is Rafal compatible with the ACLS and the ICLS? of a Nimitz-class carrier. Again, I just don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is as long as you have radios, and they all do, that you could talk any one of those aircraft down with a PAR or precision approach radar, which both, I don't know if you ever did those in the Air Force. We used to do them all the time in the Navy. And it's basically, instead of looking at the needles in the cockpit, you're just listening to a person tell you slightly above glide slope coming down on course, slightly below glide slope now coming up. You know, And they're just talking to you almost the entire way down giving you a running commentary. So I see no reason they couldn't do that on the carriers. But otherwise, yeah, when it comes right down to it, warfare, I don't know that they would ever want to try to do this. Certainly there'd be a lot of, like you said, pieces and parts going back and forth because if you don't have the little consumables and replaceables our aircraft need, they're not going to last very long. So I don't know, Bo, what do you think? No, it sounds accurate to me. You know, maintenance logistic trail is a big one. And especially when you're not, you know, going from, Air Force to Navy is one thing, and that's almost like probably the same as going from Navy to France in this case. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, add and then even more so add the problem, I guess, the challenge, if you will, of uh, a ship in the middle of the ocean someplace. So, yeah, it's going to be a challenge. And I think that while good to make sure that it is possible that maybe a one off, you can land a, a Mirage or a Rafale or whatever the aircraft is that you need to, to land on a ship, uh, it's probably not normal air to air ops warfare type ops. I think it was more a demonstration than anything, but it's certainly good to become compatible and and to get to know the allies in case you ever do have to work together. Of course, that's why you have exchange programs. I don't know if there was any Mirages. I think it was Rafals on their end and Hornets and Hawkeyes on our end. But anyway, 
Very good question. All right, next, let's take another phone call. Hey, Jello, it's Alan calling from Richmond, Virginia. I just had a question around, or actually a request. I saw on TV a couple years ago, the Air Force covered a show about the PJs and the Air Force rescue pilots. And I'd love if you had a show on the Navy, Marine, or Army, how they differ, what the training is for the pilots, and just a little kind of background discussion of the other armed services and their rescue operations, because I really love the show on the Air Force PJs and the pilots. I love your show. Thanks so much. and appreciate it. Bye. All right, Alan, thanks for the question. So yes, you have touched on one of three categories of future episodes that we peruse, if you will, here on the show. One are the aspirational topics, and this is one of them. And those are the ones that Boat or I want to see and our rest of our team. So I know Boat's going after some warbirds, which is great. I've got a bunch of different shows I would love to figure out how to do. So PJs and the AFSOC are among those, as well as the 160th SOAR and a few other things. So we will hopefully get to those soon. Stay tuned. And yes, the other two categories, just in case you're curious, are ones where we have people that will reach out to us and say, hey, I flew C-17s and went to the weapons school. Maybe you should have me on. And we say, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And we pursue those. And then the other ones are listener suggestions as well. And sometimes two out of the three will overlap. And that's generally where you hear episodes show up a little more faster than others. So great question. All right. That will do it for listener questions for this week. And as always, you can stick around till our closing bumper to hear our announcer, Clint, inform you how you can submit your question via either email or phone call. Now, Boat, before we get to our interview, you had a chance, as our co-hosts always do, to listen in advance. Any thoughts on the law of armed conflict and the ROE or rules of engagement or our guest, Shannon, before we get to it? Well, first, uh, kudos to you for uh, getting the captain on because she was fantastic, energetic, enthusiastic about her job as a JAG and super knowledgeable on the law of armed conflict and everything that, that is associated with it. You threw her some what I would consider curveballs through my computer-based training experience or briefings like you guys will talk about here in the interview, but kudos to you for that. I will tell you, I was fairly skeptical on how you're going to manage and navigate your way through uh, LOAC. You guys did a fantastic job, and I think everybody is going to be pleasantly surprised, so definitely stick around and listen to this one all the way through. Well, I hope you're right. So without further ado, let's get to the Law of Armed Conflict with our guest, Shannon Copp. My guest today is the most talented naval officer with whom I had the pleasure to serve. Shannon Copland is a retired U.S. Navy captain. She wasn't an aviator. She was a judge advocate general. Hello, Shannon. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jello. How are you? I'm doing great. What do you think of that bold statement? It's true, by the way. I can neither confirm nor deny. (laughs) Oh, boy. Here we go. Right from the beginning. All right, Shannon. Well, you are going to be a different kind of guest on the show in so much as we're not talking purely about blowing things up or shooting things down, but some of the rules and various I don't know what even to call them, but we're going to learn all about it, but some of the constraints on all those things. Now, to set the stage, when you and I were partying in Hong Kong with Air Wing 5, let's say, uh, way back when, suppose some drunk guy had come up and tried to do something to you, and I was going to defend your honor, and he and I get in a little scuffle. If we're in a fist fight, then what, right? I can punch, kick, bite, pull hair, gouge eyeballs, all these things, and probably this is a bad example because you'd 
defend yourself better than I would be able to. But as far as warfare goes, is it the same thing? Is it no holds barred? I mean, do we have rules? Do we need rules? What's the deal like a fist fight here? Well, no holds bar. I think we saw that movie on deployment. So what is it? No ring, no ref, no rules. That works for Hollywood. But I think United World Wrestling and the Olympic Committee have different ideas on why they would put some constraints on even your fist fight in Hong Kong. Okay. Well, fair enough. Well, let's get into that. But first, let's learn about you. Where are you from? Where did you go to school? What did you do in the military? So I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. I would never contemplated a military career until after I graduated law school. I went uh, undergrad to University of California, Davis. I went to law school at Santa Clara. And then I ended up on a lark, largely joining the Navy for three years, 26 years ago. I've been a judge advocate, as you said, the entire period of time. A little bit into my Navy career, I married a naval aviator, so I think that formed part of my perspective. I joined a Navy that didn't allow women on combatants, but that quickly changed, so I am that old. Uh, So the last part of my career, probably the last 15, 16 years of my career, were exclusively support to operational commanders. Uh, So I was with you at CAG-5. I was also the senior legal advisor at 3rd Fleet and at 5th Fleet out in Bahrain, at 6th Fleet out in Naples, Italy. I was special counsel to the chief of naval operations, and then I retired as the assistant judge advocate general just one December. Wow. So just uh, about three weeks ago, as we're recording this, well, congratulations on a successful career. And maybe at the end, we can talk about what you're doing next and why you got out. I always thought of you as putting on stars and going as high as you wanted to go, but maybe you did. So anyway, we can get to that later. Well, again, this will be a different kind of interview. We're going to talk about some of the rules and laws around warfare. And I've got even some listener questions for you that hopefully I can pose, time permitting. Let's start broadly, though, Shannon. Why Again, so if if I'm in a fight, to my knowledge, I just want to subdue the guy and get out of there and win. Why in general do we even need laws governing warfare? Well, that's a great question. And it is kind of the fundamental question behind the law of war, the law of armed conflict. War, as they say, is a continuation of diplomacy by other means. And therefore, there's a diplomatic, political piece to this as well. And so you have the law of armed conflict, largely because nation states say there should be one and have for a couple of hundred years. The thinking was that warfare was the continuation of a political objective by another means, but there shouldn't be unnecessary destruction, either because of a very utilitarian motive that we wanted to move in and occupy somewhere and you didn't want that particular port or other facility to be destroyed. And secondly, you want to be able to facilitate and maintain a peace following warfare. So you didn't want a vengeful population that you were coming to. And so some of these more humane tempering principles on means and methods of warfare, the treatment of prisoners of war were designed specifically to facilitate that. But largely it's because nation states think that there should be restrictions on warfare. Would you say that this is still applicable? To me, it seems like back when there were gentlemanly battles, if you will, and even duels where there were certain rules, does this still apply in 2020 and 2021 as well as it did in earlier years? Well, my opinion 
which I guess I should put in the disclaimer, is not in any way affiliated with the Department of the Navy or the Department of Defense and is purely my own. But my opinion is that it's as applicable now as it always was, although it's evolved. So earlier, I think there was some notions of honor and chivalry because it was nation on nation. You're thinking largely of a World War II type scenario. Mm-hmm. Now you see non-state actors and they don't hold themselves as people who need to comply with the law of armed conflict as nation states recognize it. However, you still need the law of armed conflict to convince your allies and partners that your cause is worthy and that the conflict is just. And so to hold those partnerships together, the law of armed conflict remains critical. And that makes sense. And I appreciate the disclaimer. And I think everyone who's listened to the show has always heard me at the end say the disclaimer. And I want to publicly credit you with that. <laughs> you were helpful in starting this podcast when we were at Third Fleet. I remember telling you I had the idea for it. And you said, yeah, you might want to wait till you get out. And as long as you're not trying to sell the government anything, you should be fine. So it's been going well. And I do thank you for that. And I still use that disclaimer, by the way, on every show. Hey, so tell me about some of the types of laws governing warfare. I'm vaguely familiar with the Geneva Conventions because I used to be scared to death of becoming a prisoner of war, but I believe there are others. There are. So the law of armed conflict, and you'll hear the term law of war, law of armed conflict, and international humanitarian law used interchangeably. The U.S. Department of Defense prefers law of armed conflict but they're largely just interchangeable for the purposes of our discussion. It's divided into kind of two areas, the areas that were covered by the Hague conventions. So those govern the means and methods of warfare, what weapons you can use and who you can use them against and that sort of thing. And then there's the Geneva conventions that you just discussed. And that is about the protection of people who are no longer involved in combat. So people who have surrendered, people who are shipwrecked, the civilian population and prisoners of war. So when you think of, you know, your great films like The Great Escape, it's about Geneva. When you think about the Chemical Weapons Convention, that's about the Hague body of law. Together, they're the law of armed conflict. Okay. And these are based on places, right? Geneva, Switzerland, and the Hague, I believe, in the Netherlands? Right. So... It's a colloquial term, and it's based on where the treaties were or where the proclamations were concluded. So a lot of the earlier ones were done in The Hague, and then the major treaties in Geneva were all done in 1949 or afterward in Switzerland, largely because there was no other place to hold a convention of that size immediately following World War II. Switzerland remains a pretty good place to catch some per diem, and so that's why they were concluded there. Okay. All right, Shannon. So I just want clarity on something you mentioned. So I am in my trusty F-18 and I'm out wreaking havoc in warfare legally. We'll get to some of that in a moment. But now a lucky bullet or a surf stair missile takes me out and I choose to eject. My situation suddenly changes. Is that true? Yes, because we're going to assume that your primary means of combat is no longer available to you. Your trusty F-A-18 is no longer trusty for you. And so you, if captured by forces from the belligerent side are going to be a should be determined to be a prisoner of war. Okay. What if I choose to carry a sidearm with me? So if you carry a sidearm with you, you can certainly use that in self-defense. But at some point, you may be subdued by the other side. So think in the context of our Vietnam prisoners of war. Mm -hmm. At some point, most of them were overcome and then became prisoner status held by the North Vietnamese. Now, what's the difference between a prisoner of war and retained personnel? I read about that once, but I wasn't totally clear. 
prisoner of war is anyone who's a combatant. So obviously an aviator is going to be a combatant. Surprisingly, lawyers are also combatants. Retained persons are people who are with the armed forces, but have a special status. So primarily that's going to be our medical personnel and our chaplains. So they actually have a different ID card. So if anyone knows a corpsman, have them flip over their ID card and you'll see on the back that they have a different Geneva Convention code right on their DOD CAC card. And it shows that they have a different status. There are some different rules that apply to them, primarily that they should always be afforded the opportunity to provide either medical or religious services, depending on who they are, to other prisoners of war from allied forces. And I read that a prisoner of war, so again, if I get shot down, I can be held until the end of hostilities. But if a retained personnel is retained, I guess that was redundant, but you get the point. They are supposed to be returned right away. Is that correct? They're eligible to be repatriated um, as soon as their services are no longer required. That doesn't mean they have to. It just means that they're eligible to be repatriated. And if they were for a medical person or a religious person, that is not a violation of the code of conduct. Okay. And so me floating down in the earlier scenario in the uh, parachute under the ejection seat of the F-18, I am different than a paratrooper who is coming out with all the buddies there in an attack because that is their primary means of combat. Is that a correct assessment? That's exactly right. And you must have been paying attention to those CAG-5 lectures I gave. (laughs) Oh, they were always so good. How could I not? Okay, so we talked about Geneva Conventions and Hague Conventions. What do we have here in the States? We have the law of armed conflict, as you said earlier. Right. The U.S. government has the law. I mean, we are parties to most of the major conventions. Some of the conventions, specifically uh, Additional Protocol 1 to the Geneva Convention, the U.S. decided not to be a state party. We didn't agree with all the terms of that. But we have what we call customary international law, which is there. it has been the custom of so many nation states over such a long period of time that we accept that as international law and the U.S. intends to be bound by it. For U.S. armed forces, personnel. This is all codified for us in the DOD Law of War Manual, which is something you can Google. It's publicly available, and it explains what the U.S. position is on any given provision within the law of armed conflict. Okay. These were the things that you and people like you used to brief to me and people like me on the ship because there's various terms in here that are important, right? So I've got a couple of these written down. Uh, Military necessity, humanity, proportionality. So can we talk about a few of these? Let's start with military necessity. Absolutely. This all comes down to what are the broad-based rules on how you're going to have any sort of a kinetic military operation or, quite frankly, And I think this is one of the questions I can anticipate, a non-kinetic military operation. And the primary among them is military necessity, which broadly is, does the nature, location, purpose, or use of something make it an effective contribution to the military action? So, you know, how do you decide what you're going to target? That's military necessity. So is that why in, say, World War II, it wasn't just attacking military facilities, it was some of the ball bearing factories, it was dams and power production and those types of things? That's exactly correct. And sometimes things can change their character of military necessity. So a good, more modern example of that is like Saddam Hussein's yacht. In the Iraqi freedom in 2003, Saddam Hussein's yacht wasn't necessarily designed to have any military necessity, but we became aware that they were using it for battlefield communication. And so that made it a legitimate target. It changed it from no military necessity to a valid target. 
Oh, outstanding. And I believe it was an S3 that took it out, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't your husband uh, in the S3s? My husband was in S3s. My husband did not take out Saddam Hussein Jad, although he was in Iraqi freedom. Oh, wow. Well, I wasn't asserting that he was, but at any rate, <laughs> that was one of their uh, proud moments, as I understand. All right, Shannon, let me challenge you on something, because earlier you said we have general rules because we all want to in the end, ideally, we don't have a population that's upset and the infrastructure is relatively easy to restore. But if I'm bombing electrical facilities and dams, I mean, clearly it's going to affect the populace. Correct. Which is kind of where you get into another principle that's critical to the law of armed conflict, and that's the principle of proportionality. And that is, does the military advantage you're going to gain from that target outweigh what we anticipate to be loss of civilian life or civilian property damage? Does that go all the way down to the point of weapon planning? So in other words, if I, or maybe as an analogy, it does, but if I can destroy something with a 500 pound bomb, then I don't need to use a 2000 pound bomb. Is that to that level? If that is an option, then absolutely. What I don't want to confuse listeners with is your deliberate target planning process, which is for the U.S. forces is just one of the most well-developed things ever your deliberate targeting process, you get down to that level of detail. You are absolutely correct. Mm. If someone is acting in self-defense, though, we're not going to tell them they can't use a 2,000-pound bomb if that's all they have and they have the need to act in self-defense. Is this where also I recall rules about the certain size of caliber, I think, if I remember correctly, that you're going to shoot at personnel, frankly? That's correct. This is the principle that all of that comes from. If some of your listeners remember... Operation Unified Protector, Bosnia, Operation Allied Force, and Kosovo, this is where a lot of proportionality came into play. And it was because the NATO alliance and our effort there was fairly fragile. We hadn't done something like this before. And so the targeting process was being developed and the emphasis on choosing a weapon that could give you almost surgical precision was absolutely there by NATO allies because they wanted that precision. They wanted the lethality, but the strategic effect there was that they didn't want a massive operation in the Balkans. Mm. There's some famous Doonesbury cartoons, a tractor being blown up and the NATO spokesperson apologizing on whether it was a civilian tractor or whether it was a belligerent force tractor. But that's where this principle really comes into play. How about humanity? Because uh, as I understand, there is some discussion in this whole concept on that, including the use of booby traps even and uh, other types of like, say, landmines. Right. And so another principle is humanity, meaning you try to minimize unnecessary suffering. Now, obviously, it's warfare. People are going to die. People are going to die in unfortunately horrific ways, but it's the intentional infliction of unnecessary suffering. One of the classic examples is using glass projectiles with the intended benefit of being able to make medical treatment for someone who comes into contact with a glass projectile more difficult. That's a classic example of unnecessary suffering. Landmines, those types of things can also come into the same principle because landmines, at least some of them, do not discriminate between a child who thinks it's a toy and a actual combatant. So in other words, we don't want something that's going to harm the populace if we can help it, but we can use certain methods against combatants. That's correct. Okay. How about targets? And we kind of touched on this before, but so for example, just like the 
religious personnel and the medical personnel are not to be targeted, generally speaking. Is it true, I assume, as well for those facilities? That is true. And that brings you to another principle of the law of armed conflict, which is distinction, meaning we try to distinguish between combatants, which are legitimate targets, and non-combatants who are not legitimate targets. And to the greatest extent possible, you try to avoid casualties for non-combatants. That includes churches and mosques. That includes cultural property that is not having any military necessity at the time. It includes the civilian population, religious personnel, medical personnel. Which is why also medical aircraft are distinguished the way they are. We talked about that during our Army Aviation Series last summer, where they'll have the big red cross with a white background, and same for the personnel. And the idea is, if there's enough attention drawn to them, they shouldn't be targeted. That is exactly right. Even though they're right there amongst the uh, soldiers, as we've all seen in the opening scenes of Saving Private Ryan, which is always difficult to watch. Yeah. How about chivalry? I mean, again, the whole idea that we have these laws suggests that we want to have some degree of decorum in battle, which again, strikes me as odd because I don't get in a lot of fistfights in Hong Kong, but if I did, I think I would just go into full freak mode. And like I said, kick, punch, bite, scream, scratch, you know, all these things. But in warfare, there is an element of chivalry. There is an element of chivalry. And really what that centers on is that you don't want one fighting force to be adhering to the law of armed conflict, to be honoring principles of proportionality, distinction, military necessity, and then having that exploited by the other side by falsely claiming those protections. So a classic example of something that you can't do is using the Red Cross or the Red Crescent on an aircraft or a ship when it's not a medical use ship and is in fact a combatant. That would be unlawful under the law of armed conflict. And in fact, if I read correctly in preparing for this discussion, wouldn't that be considered like a treacherous act versus a, what is it, a lawful ruse? So in other words, I can conceal or decoy certain military targets with netting or camouflage or whatever, but if I have a combatant aircraft with a Red Cross, and then all of a sudden it's shooting missiles or dropping bombs, then we have a real problem. That is correct. And the SAT word for your listeners is perfidy. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Give me more, because, well, first off, how do you spell it? <laughs> P-E-R-F-I-D-Y. And that is when someone does exactly as you just described, they are impermissibly using a protective symbol when they're actually a combatant. All right, Shannon. So, This whole discussion is entertaining, but let's talk about actual application, because while I'd like to say the United States does a pretty decent job of following this, I mean, I don't have personal experience with this, but I mean, come on, we don't follow every one of these to the letter all the time, do we? Well, we certainly try to. And so you'll see high profile cases of discipline when U.S. forces have failed to hit the mark. And what I mean by that is you remember the Marine urination cases during Iraqi freedom. That was kind of a low point Mm -hmm. for the Marines and discipline and certainly is not indicative of the Marine Corps as an institution. There's one example of disciplining a failure in the law of armed conflict application. However, when you have a situation where you anticipated that there would be a certain number of civilian casualties and due to unfortunate or unforeseen events, the civilian casualties near a legitimate military target are higher than anticipated, that's not a law of armed conflict violation. That's just the unfortunate nature and the tragic nature of warfare. If I can mention a couple examples, and again, I don't necessarily mean to make this a referendum on history or anything else, but, you know, so what, there was firebombing of Dresden. I believe we dropped firebombs on Tokyo. And even the 
Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, are those considered viable acts in those theaters? Those are great questions, um, and they're great questions for philosophers and theologians much more than they are for lawyers these days. Remember, the law of armed conflict as we know it now was not as well developed in World War II. A lot of the major developments came out of World War II. I am hesitant to say that any of those are a per se violation of the law of armed conflict, at least at that time. And there are many, many things written by scholars and jurists on whether using the atomic bomb, the bombing of Dresden, all those examples that you cited and many more Mm. are actually would be valid under the law of armed conflict. And usually they anchor down on the military necessity and the humanity prongs of the law of armed conflict analysis. Yeah. And what about, if you don't mind me putting you on the spot and you've done a nice job so far of uh, avoiding my parries and thrusts here, but (laughs) I'm thinking about Guantanamo and some of the waterboarding and some of the other things. Uh, Now, to be fair, I would say our opponent for the last 25 years has not honored any of these chivalry rules, laws, or anything else, to my knowledge. But I feel like one could make an argument, and certainly there was for a while, that we were not standing by them either. Some of the tactics we were using to get information from folks down in uh, Cuba. True. And I'm not going to opine on the administration's use of interrogation techniques in Guantanamo, but I think a couple of points would be helpful for your listeners. The first is the most critical distinction in a law of armed conflict situation like that is the one you brought up where you've ejected from your F-18. And that is are you a prisoner of war? It is the U.S. government position that the prisoners in Guantanamo are detainees and they are not entitled to prisoner of war status under the law of armed conflict to be a prisoner of war. And the mental image I want people to get is like Steve McQueen in The Great Escape. I hope that's an image that works for your male and female listeners, but Steve McQueen in The Great Escape. So someone who openly bear arms for a nation state, wore a distinctive uniform visible at a distance, and was subject to the law of armed conflict by a military superior. So those are kind of the principles of who gets prisoner of war status. We didn't afford that to the detainees down in Guantanamo. Secondly, the law of armed conflict applies to combatants, meaning that if you have other government agencies that are involved in interrogations, the law of armed conflict does not apply to them in all instances which doesn't mean no law applies. It means it's definitely outside my professional expertise. I see. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. Does the Uniform Code of Military Justice fall into this discussion? Absolutely. Um, So the Uniform Code of Military Justice falls into uh, law of armed conflict enforcement. If you get to the unhappy, unlikely place of 
I shouldn't say unlikely, but if you get to the unfortunate, let's use that term. Okay. If you get to the unfortunate place of having to enforce a possible law of armed conflict violation, we do it against, we use the uniform code of military justice for our military members. And so some of those are high profile cases that you would have seen in the media, but it's also, if you have a crime committed by a prisoner of war that we are holding, so we're holding a prisoner of war, they can commit a crime within one of our detention facilities. If they're afforded prisoner of war status, they're supposed to be tried under the same rules that we would afford our own armed forces. So you certainly haven't seen that in modern times. That's not something, once again, we're not affording anyone in Guantanamo prisoner of war status, but you did see it in World War II in some of the prison camps that were in the United States for German POWs in particular. Mm-hmm. Is this the reason Jags like you are on the carrier talking to air crew like me? Because, I mean, this is important stuff and clearly it can hold the balance of your military career and even your freedom if you mess this up. But is it enough for me to simply say, well, they told me to do this, so I did it? Or is it upon every individual to understand all these principles? It's upon every individual to understand all these principles. And that's going to apply differently, as you pointed out earlier, for different people. So the mission commander has a different responsibility than the AW in the helicopter who has a different responsibility than the flight surgeon who has a different responsibility than the commander of the strike group. There's different expectations. There's different training requirements for every one of you. And so we're supposed to not only understand these principles, but recognize when an unlawful order is given. Is that the one time we would be justified in non-complying? That's exactly correct. Mm -hmm. It's not only your duty, it's not only your right, it's a duty to refuse to comply with an unlawful order. But that is certainly a decision that you want to be very confident that it is, in fact, an unlawful order and just not an unpleasant one. Yes. Well, and that's where clarification can be sought first, of course. Well, speaking of rights and obligations, can we talk quickly about self-defense? Because this is something that was brought up quite frequently in my position in the military as far as being a pilot goes. There's not only self-defense for myself, but for other friendlies in the area. So let's start with a discussion or a definition on what self-defense is. Sure. And this is all unclassified. Our standing rules of engagement for U.S. forces is that every commander has the inherent authority and obligation to take all appropriate action in defense of U.S. forces in the vicinity, as well as their own unit. So you're exactly correct there. Okay. So if I'm flying along, let's say I'm over Iraq or it doesn't matter where, but let's say I'm flying along and I'm perfectly safe which is one of the reasons I chose aviation because most of the time I felt like I was. But if I look down at the poor guys on the ground and they're being attacked, am I allowed to just go on my merry way and say, oh, I'm sure they'll be fine? No, you're not allowed to go on your merry way and say they'll be fine. If they're U.S. forces, then you need to report that to someone who will either call it in as troops in contact, vector or other forces to be able to give them some close air support or other support, or at least report it so that we are aware that there's hostile action against U.S. forces going on in the vicinity. But to leave them without any action is not something that you can do. Right. And so hopefully people don't think I would do that. But the point I'm trying to make <laughs> is there really is an obligation. In other words, you can't just come home and say, oh, you know, shrug your shoulders. You could really be held responsible for not knowing this stuff. But let's hope that nobody would ever turn a blind eye to, you know, their fellow uh, comrade being attacked. 
I don't think so for U.S. forces in the sense that this is something that you were all trained in from the very beginning of the training pipeline. Mm-hmm. And it kind of gets into the DNA of all U.S. forces that it's not just a right, it is also an obligation. There's a reason that the Joint Chiefs of Staff promulgated this in an unclassified format, and that's to put the world on notice that this is the way our troops are trained to react to any hostile act or hostile intent. Well, and that's what I wanted to ask you next is what constitutes my using self-defense? I couldn't think of a fancier word there suddenly, but in other words, if someone's shooting at me, that's fairly clear. But what if they're just pointing a gun at me or what if there's electronic attack or what if they're encircling me? Well, this is where I'm going to give you a very unsatisfying answer, um, which is it depends, right? It depends on all sorts of contexts. In the Pentagon, we used to say, you know, never attribute to malice what can be explained as mere stupidity. And I think that... I think that applies to a variety of situations, including this one. And so you're going to be looking at things like the weapons and warning status at the time, the intel briefs that you've had, where you're operating, what the most recent strike group who's been in that area, what their experience with those forces has been, to be able to determine whether that is a hostile intent or whether you just have a stupid guy in which case you may make a different decision because you would feel differently about self-defense. Well, and so you can see why you want smart, experienced people in positions of leadership, because these decisions are difficult to make. And once they're made, you've got to stand by them and explain them. That's exactly right. And one thing that is useful to point out too, and you've already brought up the Uniform Code of Military Justice, is that should somebody make a decision that comes into question, you're going to be explaining it to your peers. You're going to be explaining it to people who have been in similar situations, received similar training, that sort of a thing. And so what I think I have always trained you all to do is to be able to articulate as well as you can, like, here were the things that I was thinking. And so when he zigged, I zagged, and that was still a profile that demonstrated hostile intent. And I saw no danger. So I took the shot. That's what you need to be able to explain to somebody after an event like this. A useful illustration is kind of the evolution of incidents that we had in the Gulf of Sidra with Libya. Mm-hmm. You look at earlier incidents like 1981, where we had the line of death that was drawn across the bay there saying that Libya had complete jurisdiction over all of that bay water and the, the airspace. And you had F-14s that were involved with SU-22s back in 1981. You know, their perspective on it was they had to wait until they were fired upon because they weren't certain of the intent. You fast forward past Operation El Dorado Canyon. You fast forward past, you know, some bombings in West Berlin that affected U.S. forces who were stationed there. And in 1989, you have MiG-23s coming out, and we're not waiting until we're fired upon. We're making a call on hostile intent much more quickly. So it's very contextual. Okay. So you dropped a line there that was attributable to the movie Top Gun. So let me uh, bounce that back at you. In the opening scene, of course, you've got Cougar and Maverick and their Rios going out. And you hear the uh, guy who's kind of all in one, right? The CAG, the CO and everybody. He says, do not fire until fired upon. I mean, is that part of this discussion? Is that a realistic part of the movie, do you think? Well, it certainly was in Libya. And 
I wasn't a part of the Hollywood production. I was a high school student at the time, but I will say that it bears a striking resemblance to some of our interactions in Libya at the time. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if that was what they used as the basis for those engagements for the film. So yes, under a certain set of circumstances where you are uncertain of intent, whether you have statesmen and diplomats still trying to work things out nation state to nation state, your ROE, your rules of engagement might be don't fire until fired upon. If you have other indications and warnings of what the intent is of those forces, that may not be what your rules of engagement are. And you may determine hostile intent far sooner in an engagement. Now, are rules of engagement, are they just law of armed conflict by another name? No. And this is where lawyers really get their hackles up for you. Rules of engagement are a blend of the law of armed conflict, which is kind of their predicate, but then you put politics and policy and operational effectiveness all together. And that's where you end up with the rules of engagement. It's an imperfect balance between restraint that leadership, civilian leadership is trying to make with the ability to be operationally effective. Most people have concluded in Vietnam, we didn't get that right. Most people have concluded that in you know, Unified Protector Allied Force, it was tedious, but we got closer to something that made sense. So this is why, as I understand, we have number one, different terms that we use in air combat, like hostile versus bandit, let's say. But also why I can't just, let's say, back when Operation Southern Watch was happening, if there's a known enemy aircraft, in that case a bandit, I can't just shoot them down unless they do something else, which then has more to do with the rules of engagement. That's correct. So once again, rules of engagement, that's the intersection between law, policy, and operations. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes operations would prefer that they had much more latitude on when to take action. But the political side of things is trying to allow for a diplomatic resolution to the conflict. And so they don't want to escalate things too quickly. And that's where you're going to find restraints on our forces. Mm -hmm. I think the times I was most proud to be a judge advocate for CAG-5 and for other operational commands was when you could advocate up the chain of command for why the rules of engagement needed to be changed. And it was usually explaining in very practical terms, translating operations to Washington, D.C. speak of, you know, why we would need additional authorization under the rules of engagement, or you were going to have friendly casualties that could have been avoided. Well, speaking of that, I wonder if you've read Marcus Luttrell's book, Lone Survivor, because he spends at least a couple pages in there railing against the rules of engagement that ultimately led to his team's demise. Do you have any opinion on that? I haven't read it. I am very familiar with the incident, tragic though it is. I am never going to substitute my judgment for someone who has been in that type of a position, and he is very much entitled to his position on the law of armed conflict. But overall, the law of armed conflict is there to be at the service of everyone and not just one unit in one conflict. So if you, at the end of any particular engagement, you lose your moral authority as a nation state in the process that's something that the law of armed conflict principles are there to try to prevent. And I guess it's fair to say, although maybe a bit trite, and it's not always going to be the best solution on an individual level, but in the aggregate, it might be the best overall. I mean, I don't know if that's a fair assessment or not. 
That is a very fair assessment. You just said that far better than I could have. (laughs) Well, all right. Fair enough. So again, a hostile and a bandit, you know, again, there's an implication in my cockpit based on the rules of engagement that I should not employ against a bandit because there is some reason, even though it is an enemy aircraft, that someone has said, no, this aircraft is, let's say, operating in the okay part of Iraq. Whereas if it's Southern Watch and Northern Watch, and there's rules to your point earlier about, well, in the South, they want to protect, I forget who it was. And in the North, I think it was the Kurds. Well, as soon as that Iraqi aircraft goes too far south or north, then it's still the same aircraft. But now instead of calling it a bandit, we call it a hostile based on the rules of engagement. We now know that we can engage. That's a correct statement. It shows you the difficulty of trying to blend operational effectiveness, which is what all of those things that you had to keep in your head with the political realities of the situation and the law of armed conflict all at the same time. Yeah. That's a great example. So you touched earlier on the warning and weapon status. Can you remind me what those are and how they're used? Sure. You know, your warning status is is your red, yellow, white. Your weapons control status is hold tight and free. So that's where you'll have your weapons control statuses, yellow and hold. And that is a means for the operational commander to give some context and assessment to the area where you're operating. It is not in and of itself rules of engagement, but it certainly is a factor in your determination of what could be uh, hostile intent. So as an example, you know, if you're in a warning condition that's white, that means your operational commander is telling you that a hostile attack is really improbable. If you're in a situation where the operational commander has said that the warning status is red, well, then you know there's hostile acts that are about to occur or are in fact occurring. That's going to enter your calculus on what self-defense looks like for you and your unit very differently. Mm -hmm. And then the weapons control status is very similar. Usually weapons control status is to try to give the civilian leadership time to not have us enter into an international incident before they have time to try to engage at the diplomatic level. As uncomfortable as a position that can be for an aviator, you have got to try to provide as much maneuver space as you can for civilian leadership to reach a diplomatic conclusion to something before we inadvertently start an international incident. Right. Could this also be a result of an international incident? In other words, I don't know if warning and weapon status applies to the continental United States, but I would suggest that on the evening of September 10th, 2001, we were probably as what white and hold as you can get in the United States. But 12 hours later, of course, we were under attack. Do those principles apply here? They do. And that's a great example of when these types of things would change and when your definition of hostile intent is going to change. Because by midday on September 11th, everywhere in the United States, if there was an aircraft flying, they weren't supposed to be. And so we would have viewed that very differently than we would have 24 hours prior. So as I recall, if it was weapons hold, that means basically you need to be directed to fire, right? And if it was tight, you could fire on, you're going to have to correct me here, enemy only. But if it was weapons free, which I think I heard happened on the afternoon of September 11th, that means you can shoot at anything that's not positively friendly. Did I get that right? 
Correct. That's great. So a lot of weapons control stuff, it's tied to our positive identification matrices, right? Mm-hmm. You correctly stated that if it's tight, then you have to be able to positively ID or PID someone as a hostile. But if your weapon's free, then that means if I can't positively identify you as a friendly, I'm authorized to fire. I'm guessing that doesn't happen too often. It does not happen too often, and we should be grateful for that. No doubt about it. Holy smokes. This has been really interesting, Shannon. I've got a couple listener questions. Can I fire them at you? I will try. You got to do the, your best politician bit here. So if I don't <laughs> ask you what you want me to ask you, you can just answer what you want to answer. So. All right. Joe Kunzler asks, what goes into formulating rules of engagement? And specifically, he's asking for either close air support or a no-fly zone. And I don't know if those are the same types of rules of engagement or not. They're not. I think you gave a great example earlier with Southern Watch of where, once again, I mean, it's that balance between the politics of a situation, the operational effectiveness of the situation. What can we actually do? I mean, you and I had this discussion with CAG-5 all the time of, can we do this? Can we do this? Well, legally you may, but tell me if operationally that's even possible. And that changes whether it's U.S. forces we're dealing with or whether it's a partner nation who may not have the same technology that we do. Once again, it's that balance between the law of armed conflict, which is fairly broad and expansive here. What's going to limit you in one of those situations is the politics of the situation and the ability to be operationally effective in this situation. Gotcha. And will there be rules of engagement? I'm familiar with rules of engagement for a no-fly zone. We just had that example. But what about close air support? I mean, if I'm assisting friendly ground forces, I mean, if they're being attacked as part of the battle, is that considered self-defense or is that a misuse of the term? No, it's, I mean, you're defending other friendly forces. And so that is an appropriate use. And I would invite your listeners to look for Operation Anaconda and what went well and what did not go well in that particular situation of troops in contact. Fair enough. All right, Michael Tiener, what are your thoughts on unmanned systems and the proliferation of AI and their interface with the law of armed conflict? Now, you touched on this earlier and I didn't didn't take the bait right away, but we've got lasers, we've got computers battling computers in the cyber world we've got now i mean if it's an unmanned aircraft do i have to worry about chivalry if there's nobody in a unmanned vehicle all great questions and all great minds are trying to resolve how the law of armed conflict applies to all these situations, including cyber. Cyber is really difficult because that principle of distinction, right? So I guess the big answer is we are trying to apply the law of armed conflict, which in some form goes back to biblical times and Deuteronomy and 17th century writers. We're trying to take those principles and then lay them on top of things like cyber warfare. And the principles of distinction are really difficult to sort out there. With artificial intelligence, what you get is a lot of humanitarian organizations that are concerned that a human in the loop would be able to determine before weapons release, potentially, whether they have the incorrect target or whether it appears by the conditions on the ground that you're going to have more civilian casualties than had been briefed when you were told that you would have that target. AI may or may not have those same abilities to apply that principle of distinction. So it's going to be very difficult. It's going to be very fact-specific. It's going to depend a lot on the evolution and application of that particular technology. But the big answer is, yeah, we're going to try to apply the very same principles to 21st century and beyond in warfare. Mm. 
Matthew Brahms asks if a major incident were happened in contested or disputed waters, so he's thinking Chinese vessels in the South China Sea, that might lead to hostilities, how would JAGS be involved with that? And what would it look like as far as investigations, international litigation? Based on our discussion, I would say, obviously, you're going to be involved with the rules and the weapon status and all that. But if there is an act between forces out in international space, is that something you guys get involved in? I wouldn't. But there will be my brothers in arms from the Air Force or the Space Force that certainly would. I will tell you, you know, the South China Sea, that's not a hypothetical question. Jello, you and I have been there and done that. So what would that look like real time? There would certainly be, if you had some sort of hostile exchange in the South China Sea, there would certainly be a review of how did we get to that place? What were the rules of engagement in effect? What briefing had been given to the ships, to the air crew, to the navigation team, to the tactical action officers on the ships? All of that would have been reviewed. I've participated in those types of events. Usually what we're evaluating is, did we have the right rules of engagement in place? so that what we wanted to have happened in that kind of a situation is exactly what happened. And did we provide as much maneuver space as we could politically and diplomatically for our civilian leadership? Because at the end of the day, that's what the United States is based on is civilian control of the military. Yep. Well, and that pretty much answers Andrew McDonald's question, which is, do JAGs deploy on ships and ground operations to provide on-site legal advice to commanders and anyone else who needs it? Please tell him I have the C counter to prove it. Yes. No, I was going to answer it for you. And absolutely, that's where we met was in Japan and on uh, George Washington with CAG-5. And yeah, you, you're all out there getting it done. So uh, no doubt about that. Victor says, what rules apply to air defense identification zones in general? And do the similar zones, if any, around a carrier strike group have different rules? That warms my heart. Because this is something I felt like I struggled in many ways to impress on CAG-5 and the other air wings that I work with. In the law of the sea, you guys all get stuck on the sea part of it. There's the super adjacent airspace. There's another SAT word for your listeners, super adjacent. A lot of the maritime boundaries and zones that are being asserted excessively by countries like the PRC and others, there's restrictions on the airspace as well. The establishment and the attempt to enforce an aid is, is absolutely a great example of that. And we see, you know, our ally Japan struggling with that with the PRC right now of enforcement of an air defense identification zone. Our the U.S. government position, which is backed by international law, is that national airspace is 12 nautical miles from the coastline. And so if you have no intent, if you are a military aircraft with no intent to penetrate national airspace, then any restrictions on the aid is do not apply to you. Now, you may be intercepted and escorted, but you know they can't kick you out of that airspace. Huh. Okay. And around the carrier, of course, it depends on where we are, what we're doing, and situation and threat level and all that, right? Correct. You know, when you get into carrier-controlled airspace, I go back to my earlier statement of you can't attribute to malice what can't be explained by stupidity. But somebody entering carrier-controlled airspace, you would take that as one indicator among an entire context of indicators on hostile intent. Which is why the carrier strike groups are led by admirals and not lieutenants. (laughs) 
speaking for myself. I know there's a lot of talented lieutenants out there, but oh boy. All right. Fair enough. Uh, let's see. Josh Newell. I'm curious to know if there's some legal term or concept for the idea of might makes right. We've all heard the idea that winners get to write the history books, but they also get to write the legal code as well. That's a good one. That is a great question. And it kind of goes back to what is the difference between international law and other types of legal systems? I mean, international law struggles with enforcement. And so to his point of, you know, is there a might makes right, the international legal system, definitely those who would characterize it as international humanitarian law, would say, no, it doesn't. And the enforcement mechanism of that is our own discipline of anyone who committed a war crime. The ad hoc tribunals that are used for Bosnia, Kosovo, places like that, going back to the Nuremberg trials, where we actually do establish some sort of enforcement means for people. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of that is on the defeated force, but there's still some discipline that goes on for war crimes that are alleged against the forces who were victorious in that conflict as well. Okay. Last question is from John Clark, and anyone who's seen uh, A Few Good Men maybe can answer this one, but how does legal representation in the military differ from the civilian world? That's a great question. In some ways, the process, the actual procedural rules and evidentiary rules of criminal law in the military are set up to be more protective of a service member tried under the Uniform Code than they are in a state court or even in a federal court. And that's because we understand the inherent coerciveness of being you know, disparities in rank between the judge and a, a military accused. Mm-hmm. Um, you're entitled to free counsel. Free counsel can have a variety of, you know, some disparity in experience level. That is for certain. You're entitled to bring in civilian counsel of your own choosing. So in that way, it's very much like the civilian world. I think there is a lot to recommend the military justice system generally. The other thing that specific to this context, to a law of armed conflict context, is that the members, if you select a jury, which we refer to as members under the Uniform Code, those are going to be other combatants, other people who have been or could be in similar circumstances. And so the concept of a jury of your peers is much more likely in a military context than it is in a civilian context for a law of armed conflict allegation. So I have to ask you, did the movie get any of that right? Or was it to your core as Top Gun was to (laughs) naval aviation? I was just going to say, you know, A Few Good Men is to the JAG Corps as Top Gun is to naval aviation. (laughs) And I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, did it help recruiting efforts, though? I mean, come on. I think it did. I would like to go on record as saying that I was in the Navy as a judge advocate prior to that movie coming out and prior to the television show. Oh, Jag? Yeah, see, I did get questions on that one. I decided to uh, skip them. I I suppose I do need to ask you, do you fly at all? And if so, in choker whites? And anyway. No, um, no, I don't. Primarily because I'm the person in our family riddled with very poor eyesight. If not for that, then I'm certain I would. <laughs> well, speaking of that, let's transition to the wrap up here. So you're done with your Navy career. And like I said, I was a little bummed. I thought for sure you're going to put on a couple stars, but you're probably on uh, bigger and better things or at least bigger. Well, we hope it's better. Um, so I'm now working as a counsel up on Capitol Hill on the Senate side, and I'm very much enjoying that. Good. 
And so you're out of uniform. You're home a lot, I guess. I don't, were you home a lot before? I can't imagine working at the Pentagon. Well, COVID affected everybody differently. And I think one of the ways that affected the Pentagon is, you know, many of the jobs where we said, no, never, we could never have people working from home. We found out that actually we could because the mission's the mission. You get it done however you need to. I, like a lot of other people, have had my schedule disrupted. I work some from home and I work some from the office. Okay. And our final question, if you've listened to the show, you're familiar. And I always just call all the Jags Jag, but did you ever have a call sign? No, I was always judge. Yeah. Yeah. So for about the last 15 years, I was always judge, which I don't know if that offends people who are actual federal court judges or that sort of thing. But when I hear the tame judge, it's kind of like hearing mom. I turn around. <laughs> well, if, if it didn't offend people, it wouldn't be a good call sign. So yeah, I do, <laughs> I do remember uh, Keg Monkey Butt calling you judge rather all the time, but hard and shot here, just being a jag doesn't make you a military judge or does it? It doesn't. Uh, it makes you eligible to be a military judge, but that's a, a separate screening process. All right. Well, maybe that will be part two someday. So Shannon, this has been a lot of fun. You've uh, definitely schooled me on a lot of things that I remember and forgot that I remembered. And and hopefully the listener finds these types of discussions interesting. As I said at the top, it's not the size of the boom or the speed of the jet or anything else, but these are really important topics that we covered today. It's been an honor and a pleasure to talk to you again. Thanks so much for having me, Jello. All right. Well, big thanks once again to Shannon Copland. Man, wow, she was fantastic. Now, Boat, she didn't really take the bait at the beginning there, but what do you think of having listened to that? Can you see why I called her one of the most talented officers I ever had the pleasure to serve with? Oh, absolutely. She was awesome. Like I said, she kept your attention the whole time and was very enthusiastic about it. And if she didn't know, she didn't make something up, which was nice and refreshing because I think a lot of people just like to hear themselves talk sometimes, but very much a, a smart and a talented person, clearly. And I think the Navy is probably already regretting their choice to let her escape without a couple, of, at least one star. Yes. And I really did mean it. I thought she could go very high and and she is a talented person. Hopefully she'll do some good work there on Capitol Hill. But I guess part of the reason I wanted you to be on the show, besides I enjoy your company, thank you, thank you. Uh, on this particular episode is just to kind of balance what we heard from Shannon there with your experiences. And I realize you're not a JAG or whatever you guys call it, but I guess let's just touch on your experiences with the Air Force. Are those concepts that she covered today, are they similar to yours? experiences or different? Nearly identical. The term judge advocate general is, I think, synonymous across all the military services within the United States. So I think that is a, a clear start to the uniformity with which the code of military justice is applied. And that's why it's called the uniform code of military justice. Mm. You know, whether you're looking at ROE or the law of armed conflict, what other, other topics you guys covered within the uh, confines of the interview, the goal is that all that is being applied uniformly and with the same intent, mindset, and um, rationality to hmm. these situations, regardless how big or small. And you guys mentioned a couple of different scenarios in there and how you know one person could be very outspoken in the media after their time is up. And that's all well and good. And they were in the heat of the battle. And, and just like the captain said, you know, you don't want to dismiss how they felt or their experience within that time frame, but you also have to look at the bigger picture that it's called dime for a reason, diplomacy, information, military, and uh, economic tools of politics. And 
the military is just one aspect of it. And we have to respect right. the orders of those above us and the politicians that are making the laws that we're all obliged to follow. So it's a tough one to uh, swallow at times, mm -hmm. uh, especially when you kind of feel something is right in your gut. But at the same time, there may be a bigger picture that you can't see that, you know, we need to honor, if you will. Yeah. Well, and that's what I was getting to with the reference to the Lone Survivor book, mm -hmm. because he does really rail on that at the beginning. And understandably, I mean, for heaven's sakes, he went through some pretty traumatic experiences in that book. Absolutely. But yeah. It, yeah. In the end, right, there's probably no one perfect solution to this, but it is important and it affects people. And so that's why there are folks like Shannon who are out there being uh, boots on the ground on the carriers. And I assume in the wings with you and et cetera. But mm -hmm. I know that you use, obviously, you know, if we were flying a, next to each other, hostile bandit, all those terms are the same, but what about warning the weapon status? Is that something you guys used in the air force as well? Yeah, absolutely. The same exact concepts. And I okay. think same application of those depending on the scenario. And uh, again, it just speaks back to that uniformity of the rule of law, the application of force that we're looking to apply and trying to create a standardized set of rules with which to work from so that everybody knows what the expectations are and can follow them without being kind of cornholed or, or pigeonholed, if you will, into a situation that they're not prepared for. They should all have a pretty good idea. And those same warning and weapon states exist across the entire force service-wide. Well, and you said before we listened to the interview that you hoped people would stick around and enjoy it. And so having just listened to it again, I certainly did. I learned so much and I always do. Anything else we need to cover here, Boat? I would say that the one piece of this, or not really the one piece, but there's a fairly large facet of this that might be worth another discussion down the road is looking at things from the operator side, as far as maybe the commander, you know, the pilot in a specific situation. And we can look at the ROEs and talk through hey, in this situation, I saw this or whatnot, and how the ROEs either helped or hindered their ability to do what they thought was right. But because of their discipline and their adherence to the ROEs, they were able to be successful in a different way, not necessarily shooting down another aircraft. Oh, that's a valid point. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, let's check in with another member of the BVR Productions Podcast Network. You may remember John Waters when we introduced his Afterburn podcast with him back in January of 2020. Welcome back to the show, Rain. Hey, Jill. Thanks for having me. Excited to be back. Good. Good to have you back. How was your first year in podcasting? It was a whirlwind. Yeah. And it's one of those things I didn't, again, I think I joked the first time around, I couldn't spell podcasts. So I can barely <laughs> spell podcasts now. But it was exciting. It's fun to see the podcast grow. I've learned so much. To me, it's fascinating talking to all these people with such vast and diverse backgrounds that they have stories to tell, and it's cool to capture those stories, and I enjoy it. No doubt. Well, you learn a lot about them, but I would say I've learned a lot about me, too. Have you found that to be true for you, the little isms you have and the way you ask questions and things like that? 100%. So one of the fighter pilot games in the debrief, I think you probably played it is counting whatever your word is of that day. That's right. Fascinating is definitely one of my words. And so as I go back and I listen to either how I ask the questions or whatever my word of the day is, I find that uh, interesting, to say the <laughs> least. Well, at least yours is somewhat of a Reader's Digest fancy word. Mine are all the Bill and Ted words. Excellent. Awesome. Dude. <laughs> you know. So anyway. All right. Well, how many episodes are you up to now? 25, no, sorry, 26 just dropped. And then I got number 27 that's coming out next week. We've incorporated some Q&A sessions that are in between the episodes. So 
it's been fun. It's growing. I'm excited about my next episode. I got Purdy, who is RAF Red Arrow's leader. He survived an ejection in the Harrier, and we talk a lot about that. So, you know, again, those are kind of go back to the stories that people are out there sharing and just trying to capture that. It's fascinating to me. All right. And I always hated this question because it's like picking a favorite child, but any favorite episodes in the, those 26 or seven? It's really tough because there are some guys who've done some incredible things. Shiner, who was episode 17, he's an HH-60 pilot. When he was describing his story, he had two distinguished flying crosses within the same month. And listening to him describe this coordinated attack the Taliban was placing on them and some infantry guys, A-10s are involved. I mean, planes and helicopters are all over the place. Bullets and RPGs are flying. You just sit there and listen to him tell the story. And I was just like, I mean, all my jaws on the floor. It's incredible. There are some amazing people out there, and I count it a privilege, I'm sure you do too, to be able to capture them and their stories and uh, get them on the air for perpetuity. So what do you got coming down the pike? You talked about the Red Arrows, but big picture, you got any anything else coming down? Yeah, again, I mentioned the Q&A sessions. Mm-hmm. We got those going on. That's something new, hopefully growing that. And then uh, I had two episodes dedicated to an F-16 mishap at Shaw that happened in June of 2020. And I was really hesitant to do that episode, and I got a lot of really good feedback. But it was really close to home, a lot of buddies who were still there and involved. And out of that, actually, my former boss reached out. We had a mishap when I was downrange during Operation Inherent Resolve. We lost a good friend of mine, Pyro. Hmm. So again, near and dear to the heart. And he wants to do an episode on that. And I think it's actually going to break down into a series where we're going to really dig into it and break down Pyro's life, the leading up to it, everything like that. So that's in the works. It's going to be a big project because we want to do it right and do right by Pyro. For sure. And his family. Good on you. Okay, cool. Well, remind us what the show is called and where everyone can find it. So the Afterburn podcast, you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite podcast app. But the afterburnpodcast.com, again, you got to throw the the on front of it. So the afterburnpodcast.com and go over there for some more content. All right, Rain. Thanks for stopping by, man. Hey, Jello. Thanks for having me. You bet. All right. Well, then we can begin to wrap it up today. First off, we want to thank our new Patreon strike lead, Chris Lutton. And we have new mission commanders, Anthony Edwards and Don Riggs. But you know it, but we'll say it again for everybody. The views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. And again, our thanks to Shannon, who helped us with that disclaimer a couple of years ago when we first started the show. And she had a chance to try it out herself now, finally, after all these years. Well, let's see, Boat. We've been talking about you and Warbirds for a while now. Why don't you tell everybody what's coming up next week? Yeah, we have been talking for quite a while, and I can't believe it's now finally almost, I mean, it's we're recording this on the 10th of March, but we're already talking about the end of March. I don't know what happened to the world, <laughs> but here we are marching through March, so to speak. And I guess you're right. It's time to crack that can open and, and let's get this P-38 episode kicked off the right way, starting off the Warbird episodes, my favorite aircraft, and uh, we've got an awesome guest lined up that flew in the European theater of World War II. It's going to be epic. I can't wait for everybody to hear it. Awesome. Well, the last time you went solo, I came in at the very, very beginning and said, all right, Boat, you got it. Kind of analogous to your uh, instructor jumping out and saying, hold on, I got to go get something or whatever it was. That was great. That's right. But this time I'm going to be in training. So tell you what, buddy, you've got episode 108 on the P-38. And I'll look forward to listening to that in between training evolutions. Otherwise, appreciate you stopping by today. Thanks so much. Yeah, you got it. Thanks for having me. You bet. All right. And for everyone else, take care of yourselves. And we'll see you, well, Boat will see you next time here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So long. 
You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Hey, Jello, this is Edward Grabeau from Reseda, California. Just want to say thank you for your service, sir, and also thank you so much for this podcast. I am loving it. It is awesome. Your guests are awesome, and I love your Century Series. Just a great time for aircraft and a learning process and some great aircraft that came out. And a little trivial caveat I want to throw in there. At one time, the F-4 Phantom II was going to be considered by the United States Air Force as the F-110. And I guess cooler heads prevailed and they decided that they were going to go with the inter-service commonality and switch it back to the F-4 Phantom II also. So just a a little trivia piece right there. And I believe it was only the F-110 on paper for a short time. And actually, by the time it went in the United States Air Force Service, it was the F-4 Phantom II. Love your podcast once again. It is an honor to listen, and it's a pleasure to listen to. Keep doing what you're doing. Thumbs up. Thank you very much. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.